We're going to be in Luke chapter 7 this morning. Uh, We'll be looking at a story of a powerful encounter between Jesus and a sinner, uh, which all of us are sinners, so pretty much any any person Jesus meets is going to fall in that category, but it is the story of a notorious sinner, someone with a reputation, and while we can't be 100% certain, uh, Luke is not explicit in terms of this sinner's occupation, uh, there are a number of textual clues which lead scholars to believe that she was likely a prostitute. Um, now, surely this wasn't the plan that she, as a girl, had laid out for herself. Someday I dream of being a prostitute. Certainly not uh, the plan that her parents would have had for her when she was a young girl. And it kind of makes you wonder, I mean, what series of circumstances came together to kind of cause her to move into this lifestyle, to go from being an innocent child to becoming what she was as we meet her in Luke chapter 7. I mean, I wonder about that. Was there a childhood marked by abuse? Did she marry the wrong man who eventually divorced her and just kind of kicked her to the curb? And this was the only economic alternative she saw to make ends meet. Was she sold at some point into sex trafficking? We, we don't know the backstory here, but somehow, some way, dreams and hopes for her had turned to dust as she turned to prostitution. And now her nights would pass with her either standing on a street corner looking for customers or entertaining those customers. And her mornings were likely passed um, sleeping in, nursing a hangover. So how did she get there? How did she get to this place in life? I suspect that's something she often wondered herself. So instead of finding the love that she had always been looking for, she found herself an object to be used night after night. No doubt she tried to drink herself into numbness, into an oblivion, drinking with her customers at night, drinking during the daytime to forget what happened the previous night. And forget the forgetting the fogging of memories, that was about as good as she could hope for. Her friends, of course, are women like her. They're the only ones who will be seen with her. So how many times, I wonder, did she lie in bed in the morning just kind of staring at the ceiling after a long night wondering how she got to that place? What she had always wanted was to find love, the love of a lifetime, not to be used night after night. Well, at some point during the day, it's time for work, and so her daydreams are interrupted knowing it's time to get back to work. Her hair is put up, her seductive clothing is put on, 
Um, her perfume hangs around her neck in a small alabaster jar. She puts on her earrings, um, smears makeup on her face, and she's ready to go. It's dark. It's time to walk through town to that familiar corner, dabbing a little perfume on her neck. She hopes that tonight will bring profit. Men. All kinds of men. She's met all types, but they're really all the same to her. The salesmen and soldiers, the locksmiths and lawyers, the taxmen, the teachers... Each one desperately wants her that evening only to disappear in the morning. Men are all the same to her. Then in Luke chapter 7, she meets Jesus. And I imagine her meeting him on his way to this dinner party that is described for us by Dr. Luke in chapter 7. Now, she's used to turning heads. She is very intentional in the way she dresses and conducts herself in trying to attract the lurid, lustful stares of the men who walk by. These eyes, however, the eyes of Jesus, are not drinking in the contours of her body. They're looking deeper. They see beyond the exterior, and they seem to gaze into her soul. They see her. They see what it is deep within her that brings her to this place night after night. And his look causes her, funny enough, causes her to blush with an unfamiliar modesty. I imagine him speaking to her. She probably recognized him as the rabbi, the prophet that everybody's been talking about. He shares with her that what she's looking for won't be found in this place, won't be found on a street corner, that the love and peace that she gave up on long ago, that it is still there for the taking. I imagine he tells her that the love of God can wash all of her sins away and she knows they are many. And then he turns and continues on his journey toward his engagement that evening. Could it be true? This is the one, Jesus, this is the one everybody has been talking about. Could the things he said be true for her in her life? He's been quite, causing quite a stir, stir as we follow Jesus around in the Gospel of Luke. He's been qu causing quite a stir. She no doubt knows by interacting with people a lot like her. Levi, the tax collector, Roman soldier, people who were sick, who were ceremonially unclean. And so there's this possibility here. A possibility that maybe God could love someone 
like her. Could wash away her shame. Could wash away all of her sins. And because of that possibility, she can feel her heart beating. She's got to get close to Jesus. So she collects herself. I imagine her following at a safe distance. And then, this isn't good. She sees him turn into the home of Simon the Pharisee. She's felt the the cold gaze of self-righteousness and condemnation from this Simon before. And so for 20 or 30 minutes, I imagine her pacing back and forth, back and forth in front of Simon's house. She can see through the open door into the home, there's Jesus reclining at the table with with Simon and with other guests who, who she does not recognize. She may never get this opportunity again, so she charges in, head down, scooting around the other guests, reclined around that low table, dodging the servants who are carrying drinks and carrying food, trembling. She falls to Jesus' feet, and He looks at her, And she looks at him. Everyone sees what's happening. I think the room has become quiet at this point. Some are shocked by the intrusion of this uninvited guest, this party crasher. Others are thinking, a prostitute in Simon's house. This is going to get interesting. Not knowing what else to do, she takes that jar of perfume off from around her neck, pops off the lid, and begins to anoint the feet of this rabbi with her perfume. Now, there is another story in the Gospels that looks a lot like this one. In Bethany, at Lazarus' house, Mary is the person in that story who anoints Jesus with very expensive perfume, pure nard. This is not Bethany, this is not Mary, and this is not expensive perfume. This is the cheap stuff. This is all that she has. And Simon the host is at a loss for words. He's not exactly sure what to do in a situation like that. It's gotten very, very awkward. A woman whom everyone recognizes as being someone with a reputation is in his home, is filling the room with the smell of this perfume as she wipes the feet of Jesus. For Simon, this is proof of what he has suspected all along about Jesus. This rebel rabbi that he is not truly a prophet of God. If he were a prophet of God, he would not allow this to happen. He would know what kind of woman she was. He'd be wagging a finger in her face. He would be kicking her out. And as she works on his feet, Jesus, however, 
you've got you've to see Jesus. He is totally at ease. The only one there who's totally at ease. At peace. The picture of shalom. Lying there, perhaps taking another bite of food. And now she realizes that she's kind of making a mess. Her tears falling on that dusty floor, on those dusty feet, the perfume, everything. It's kind of making a mess. And so now she undoes her hair and she begins to clean and dry the feet of Jesus with her hair. And as she does this, she is, we're told, she is kissing over and over again the feet of the Savior. Scandal, Simon thinks. How can Jesus continue to allow this to go on? And then instead of lecturing the prostitute... Jesus turns his look to Simon. Simon, let me tell you a little story. Once upon a time, there were two men who owed the banker, who owed the money lender, sums of money. Neither of them were in a situation to be able to pay the moneylender back. They knew it, and he knew it. One of them owed 500 denarii, a lot of money. One of them owed 50 denarii, a more modest amount. The moneylender decided to cancel the debts of both, to simply erase those amounts out of his ledger, forget about those debts. Simon Jesus asks, <laughs> which of those two debtors who was forgiven, which of those two do you suppose will be more grateful? Which of the, those two will love the moneylender more? Simon responds, I suppose the one who owed the greater debt. Everyone in the room knows they aren't talking about denarii. They aren't talking about financial debt here. And then Jesus does something even more shocking, okay? Not only does he not rebuke the sinful woman, he does rebuke his host. Simon, know what? I got to your house. You never offered me water or a towel to wash off my dirty feet. Well, she's been washing my feet with her tears and drying them with her hair. Simon, you didn't give me a kiss of greeting when I came into your home. She hasn't stopped kissing my feet. Simon, you didn't give me scented oil to anoint my head, but she has poured this perfume on my feet. The forgiveness that this woman has received is manifested in her lavish showering of love on Jesus. 
the tears, the hair, the kisses, the perfume, tokens of a grateful heart, symbols of the forgiveness that she knows she has received. At the end of the story, Jesus will say to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That night in Simon's house, a new, not a new chapter, a new life is unlocked in her future. A brand new life. She found forgiveness. She found salvation. She found the love, everlasting love, her heart had been longing for. And when I think about the two people in this story, beyond Jesus, Simon and I think about the woman, I see these massive differences. Not in terms of their... Uh, we're not, I mean, there are differences here, but not, not really in terms of their position in the community, their, their financial status, or any of that stuff. The biggest difference I see, the biggest contrast here, this is on the outline this morning, is this one. From Jesus, Simon wanted respectability wanted to have an honored celebrity guest at his dinner party, Jesus. From Jesus, Simon wanted respectability. The sinful woman in the story wanted redemption. They want very different things from this encounter with Jesus. It's quite a contrast. Simon didn't particularly like Jesus. Okay? He wasn't interested in hanging out with Matthew and the other disciples, he invited this popular rabbi to his house to make a statement to the community, look, I'm Simon. When I, when I invite someone over, they come, even Jesus, even this celebrity rabbi. No one turns down an invitation to my dinner parties. And the fact that Jesus, the one everyone has been talking about, is there at his dinner table. Breaking bread with him is another feather in Simon's cap. It's about respect. It enhanced people's perception of him. And that's what he wanted. And perception was, was incredibly important to Simon and people like him. Uh, they wanted to enjoy the admiration of the community, the respect of the community. She, on the other hand, is not concerned at all with Appearances in this situation. Not interested in a veneer of respectability. She knew that she needed more than window dressings to address what was going on in her life. She needed the redemption that only Jesus could offer her. So there's this contrast, right? Simon, the sinful woman. Then there's a commonality in the story, not between Simon and the sinful woman, although they are both sinners. There's a commonality between the sinful woman and Jesus. And we're reminded of it by Luke. She had a reputation, right? Well, Jesus had a reputation too. They both had reputations. So here's the commonality. Both Jesus and the woman were people with 
a reputation. Jesus, uh, Luke actually records these words of Jesus as he himself calls folks out on this reputation he's gotten. Luke chapter 7, verses 33 to 35. Jesus says, <laughs> it's kind of funny, I almost imagine a chuckle here. I don't know. But Jesus is pointing out the irony of this reputation he's gotten. He says, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. <laughs> Jesus spent so much time around the Levi's and the Zacchaeus's and the sinful women and the lepers and the diseased and fellowshipping with the likes of Romans and Samaritans. Jesus invested so much time in people like that that, yeah, he had gotten a reputation. People were talking about that all the time. He points it out. You know, John the Baptist came along. John the Baptist had taken what was known in the Hebrew culture as a Nazarite vow. Very strict dietary rules, rules about cutting or not cutting your hair to separate yourself for God. He had taken that vow... And folks said, he's crazy. He's demon-possessed. And Jesus says, I show up and I'm hanging out with sinners. I'm eating, eating their food. I'm drinking their wine. And I get accused of being a drunkard and a glutton. That's his reputation. Amazingly, this is amazing, really. No one could accuse Jesus of a specific sin that he had committed. There are plenty of sins y'all could accuse me of and be right on target. No one could find something to accuse Jesus of that would actually stick. Yet, he was constantly rubbing elbows with notorious folks. And for people like Simon, it just didn't add up. Now, it took a lot for that woman to go to Simon's house. It took a lot for, she, for her to do what she did, but desperate times caused for desperate measures. It wasn't just that Simon and all the respectable people in town thought that she was a sinner. Look, she thought she was a sinner. She had no delusions about being some sort of saint, okay? Nothing was going to stop her from getting to Jesus, and that's because she knew in Jesus she would find redemption. So real quickly, we're just going to go through this real quickly. I found this interesting about this party crasher. All of the barriers, all of the reasons, all of the excuses she could have come up with to not go into Simon's house, to not approach Jesus she cast those aside. Number one on this, she didn't let what other people thought or how they might react 
keep her from coming to Jesus. A lot of us are driven less by what God thinks or might think than by what other people might think. We wouldn't want to offend them. We wouldn't want them to think less of us. She was consumed with what the Lord thought. Next, she didn't let her record of past sins stop her from coming to Jesus. She didn't think, oh, Jesus could never love somebody like me. God could never forgive someone as sinful as I am. She didn't let that stop her. She knew God's love could forgive her. She understood that better than the rest of them. In, in a sense, she had a better theology than those religious teachers did, like Simon. She didn't let her present shame, the embarrassment of the situation, she didn't let that stop her from coming to Jesus. So here in Luke chapter 7, we have the story. Jesus at a dinner party with Simon. In comes the sinful woman. We have the story, but then we have the story within the story. That parable that Jesus gives to us. And I think there are four essential truths for us to consider, for us to respond to in our lives that come out of that little story. The first one is this. Number one, I am a spiritual debtor, just like you and you and you, just like everybody else. I am a spiritual debtor. In the story that Jesus shares, verse 41, two men owed money. They both owed money. Now, they were different sums, but they were both in the same boat. They were both debtors. So Simon knew the woman and knew her to be a sinner. And yes, he was correct. She was a sinner. What he refused to see was that he was a sinner too. So in that story, Jesus told about the guys in debt. Sure, the amounts are different, but both of them owed money. Simon and the woman were both in debt. They were both sinners. Dot, 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 and so am I. So are we. So Simon had no, look, he had no problems at all identifying, diagnosing the sins in that woman and other people. He had no problems at all saying, look, she is spiritually bankrupt. He just didn't see that at all in himself. Now, 50 denarii or 500 denarii. Their sins, okay, they may have been different in substance. They may have different, been different in severity. I don't know. They may have been different uh, in terms of quantity. But they both had a sin problem. Now, that's important to come to terms with because that second thing that, that I see in the story is that there is no way that Simon or the woman in the story, there's no way that I or that anyone else will be able to address that problem, will be able to pay that debt. And Jesus points that out, verse 42. Neither of them, in the story he tells Neither of them 
though the amounts are different and all of that stuff, neither of them had the money to pay him back. Not only were both Simon and the sinful woman sinners, but neither could gain forgiveness from God on their own. They both needed saving. They both needed a Savior. And so do we. Now, i got to tell you, this is a quote, more or less, as best I can remember it, and I can't remember who wrote this. So... Apologies to someone out there who came up with this, but it, it, it says this, you know, if our biggest need had been for more information, God would have sent us a professor. If our biggest need had been for technology, he would have sent us a scientist. If our biggest need had been money-related... He would have sent us an economist. If our biggest need had been for pleasure, God would have sent to the world an entertainer. But our greatest need was for forgiveness. And so God sent us a Savior. Nobody can pay back or erase the sin debt that they have before God, everyone needs a Savior. And the Savior's name is Jesus Christ. Number three. This is the good news, folks. God's forgiveness is available to everyone, including me. You ever think, why, why was Jesus spending so much time with these folks who everybody knew were not okay? Perhaps, I think Jesus loved them, first of all. Jesus felt the pain of their isolation, of their shame, I think. But, but also, Jesus needed to make a point. I can save anybody. My forgiveness is bigger than whatever sins you have committed in your life, Jesus seems to be saying. So in that little parable, well, verse 42, it says, He canceled the debts of both. Verse 42, He canceled the debts of both. So in that little parable, one guy owes 500, the other guy owes 50. But they both did, in fact, owe money to that money lender. And I don't know that you think about this at first glance, but think about it. The solution that the moneylender has to this problem that these two fellows can't pay off their debts, the solution is, would you agree, a rather expensive solution. I know what I'll do. Forgive the debts. Problem solved, but that's an expensive solution. Did our forgiveness come cheap? No, it didn't. The blood of Jesus shed for me, shed for you. The blood of Jesus poured out on the cross that's our hope. It didn't come cheap for the Lord. 
Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. If you've ever wondered why the cross, why Calvary, what's up with that? Hebrews 9, 22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so the Lamb of God, the perfect Son of God, Son of the Almighty, Jesus, shed His blood for our forgiveness. And when we understand, when we feel the weight of our sinfulness and appreciate the price that was paid to wash us clean, to clear the ledger, the response is gratefulness. It's what we're doing here this morning, worshiping, celebrating together. The response to that is love. The response of that is discipleship. The response of that is, God, how can I honor you with my life? Number four, a great appreciation for the sin that I have been forgiven produces a grateful and a generous, a giving heart in me. That's what it does. When you understand God's grace, you don't seek to do less for God, okay? You want to do more because you understand what happened. Eugene Peterson in the message translates verse 47 this way. The words of Jesus, She was forgiven many, many sins, and so she is very, very grateful. If the forgiveness is minimal, then the gratitude is minimal. So in the, in the end, the woman saw the love that God had for her. And in Christ, we can find that love as well. Simon couldn't recognize love when it was reclining at his dinner table, literally staring him in the face. He still couldn't see it. So let me finish with this. God's love is unconditional. God loves you. John affirms in one of his letters, God is love. I promise you, God loves you. He loves every man, every woman, every child, every baby. God loves you, period. That is unconditional. Now, here is the tricky part. God's forgiveness is not unconditional. God's love for every person is unconditional at every moment with every person because He gave His Son for the salvation of all. Whether or not you accept that gift, in fact, His grace is the word charis in Greek, which literally could be translated gift. Whether or not you accept that, whether you not, or not you unwrap that present, well, that's based on how you respond to His love for you. John not only tells us God is love, John writes in 1 John 1, 9 that if, if we're honest about our sinfulness, or in John's words, if we 
confess our sins, then God will forgive us. There's a condition there, right? It's about being real. It's about being honest about who I am. About the sins that I've committed in my life. Simon, oh, I feel for him. I really do. I don't see him as a villain in the story. I don't feel anger towards Simon. I feel pity. Simon was more concerned about saving face than he was about experiencing God's grace. And that makes me sad. The woman, (laughs) you want an unambiguous, resounding yes to the forgiveness that's being offered her? There you have it. And what about us? What about you? Will you accept that forgiveness that Jesus has offered you? God loves you. Will you accept his forgiveness? Because you are a sinner, and you need a Savior. And if you're willing to do that today, you can take him on in baptism, being immersed into all that he conquered for you on the cross. You can do that today. If you need prayers, pray with somebody. You can pray with one of your neighbors sitting around you, a family member or small group. Come down and pray with me or one of our shepherds. We'd love to help you this morning. Let's respond with gratefulness to the gift that God has offered us. Let's be standing and sing.